everyone, and welcome back to Tom Mullen Talks Movies. This is episode three, and today we have one of the movies that I had in mind when I decided to create this podcast. One of my all-time favorites, and probably one of the most unlikely of anyone's all-time favorites. Uh, by the end of this podcast, hopefully you'll see why. Um, this unsuspecting film, this uh, little romantic comedy, um, would uh, would be a film that that has stayed with me for 33 years since released in March of 1990. And of course, I'm talking about Joe versus the Volcano. Uh, this was distributed by uh, Warner Brothers, released March 9th, 1990. It stars Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, Lloyd Bridges, Robert Stack. And uh, a host of other cameos by very Abe Vigoda's in it. Um, uh, a there's a bunch of big stars making cameos or very short parts in the movie. Um, it was directed by John Patrick Shanley. And once I saw this for the first time, uh, and, and this is before the internet, okay, I, I was really interested to find out who is this guy? Because uh, this movie is so packed with references to mainly ancient myths that um, I, I figured this guy must be a mythologist or somebody on the order of a Joseph Campbell. I, I don't think he is. Now that we have the internet, I can at least look at his Wikipedia. And his education does run along um, those lines a little bit, but nothing to indicate what I'm about to share with you. As always, I recommend that you watch the movie before listening to the rest of this podcast. Of course, there will be spoilers here. I'm going to talk about the story, talk about how it ends. So um, so if you have not seen Joe versus the Volcano, hit stop and uh, save this podcast until you've actually uh, had a chance to sit down and watch it. So John Patrick Shanley also... Uh, wrote he uh, uh, Moonstruck, which was a, a a big hit movie in the 1980s with Nicolas Cage and Cher. Uh, he won three Academy Awards, uh, including one for his screenplay. In that, he, he um, I think this was his directorial debut, Joe versus the Volcano, um, and he also wrote the script for this movie. So, um, let's get into it. Um, first of all, the idea that something like this would be set within the format of a romantic comedy is interesting because as you know, most romantic comedies are not very deep. Um, and they, they, they generally, um, you know, have a, a, a pretty simple plot where there's some kind of conflict that, uh, makes the two main characters, um, kind of break up or, or or something gets in the way of their living happily ever after at the end. And usually, of course, in woke Hollywood, this uh, lately in the, in the past few decades, this has been that the man has to learn what a bad guy he is and, uh, and then uh, figure out, have the woman teach him, you know, where he's been going wrong. And, and at the end, you know, he, he changes somehow and, and they live happily ever after. Uh, fortunately for the audience, for everybody listening, this movie kind of predates 
that whole theme that's kind of a 21st century idea. But of course, every journey of a hero, there's got to be some growth. And um, I mentioned journey of the hero. There's a lot of Joseph Campbell in this movie. And and Tom Hanks, I I assume, I've never heard him interviewed or, or, you know, say anything to this effect, but I have to assume that because of the choices he makes, like Castaway, that he must be somebody who is a fan of Joseph Campbell. Campbell uh, is probably the most influential mythologist of the 20th century, and he wrote a book in 1949 called The Hero with a Thousand Faces. And basically what he says in this book is that not only can you find this story of what he defines as the hero's journey in every culture, that that we're actually human beings are compelled to keep retelling the story, and that basically all over the world we always just retell the same story. And I guess I could say that, um, and and the, he breaks it down to, you know, these these classic epic myths like the Odyssey. Uh, he includes the Jesus story. He includes um, uh, Native American stories, uh, Asian Far Eastern stories, of course the the um, the Levant Greek myth, but um, even right down to what makes a joke funny. He he finds elements in most jokes of this story of the hero, and and I can give you the bare bones of it. I if you've never read this book or been exposed to his ideas, I recommend that you read the book as well. Um, the hero with a thousand faces. But basically what he says is here are the elements of the story. And I'm going off memory. So if I leave one or two out, you know, uh, forgive me, but that at some point at the beginning of this story, the hero is kind of called to action. He's called to some kind of a quest. And let me um, just interrupt myself and say, uh, Campbell became good friends with George Lucas. So you will hear, the elements of the Star Wars saga, especially Luke Skywalker in what I'm about to say. So the uh, the hero is called to some kind of action and um, he has to go on a journey and this journey will take him to another world that he's completely unfamiliar with. And uh, one example is Jack and the Beanstalk, okay? And he he gets some kind of divine help early on to help him to achieve some goal. And of course, you know, you can think Hercules, you can think just a million different heroes. And often the, um, the, the other world that he has to journey to is across a body of water. And he has to go there and overcome some great trial, some, some, you know, overcome great odds to achieve some something now it could be killing a monster or a dragon like Beowulf, or it could be um, to solving a riddle. It could be like Theseus goes into the, the labyrinth to kill the Minotaur. Um, there's it, it, it never ends. Just about every story, classic story, our iconic story about a hero includes this element, and the. Um, 
the, the crucial part is that once he achieves whatever this goal is that he has to accomplish in this other world, that he comes back to the world that he's familiar with and he brings something back, uh, whether that's a tangible thing like the goose who laid the golden eggs or whether it's uh, just some kind of wisdom, some kind of knowledge. He comes back to his own people and kind of saves his people, brings back this thing, this knowledge or, or this, uh, this prize, the golden fleece, whatever. Um, so you could see that these elements are all there in the movie Castaway, which is a kind of a more serious, dramatic treatment of this story uh, where um, Sam Hanks, again, he, he goes to the island uh, involuntarily. Again, he crosses a body of water. Um, crossing the water is often equated symbolically with baptism, which is either the cleansing of one's sins or, or actually a rebirth into a new person. Um, so, uh, yeah, this is something that you can, you can pick out of many of Tom Hanks movies. I guess big would be another example where he's actually transformed into an adult. And, and of course that's a, that's the different world he has to travel to and then, and then come back. So, um, again, I don't want to get too far afield into the hero with a thousand faces, but I highly recommend you read it. It will put a whole new framework for you. If you're a star Wars fan, if you are a fan of the classic, the Odyssey, the Iliad, all everything you've ever read that is a, a classic hero story, um, will take on a whole new kind of meaning for you so back to joe versus the volcano we're going to do the same thing but we're going to do it in the context of this romantic comedy and boy oh boy is it packed with symbols a symbolism so i guess i'll just kind of walk through the plot of the story and point out some of the signposts to what i think the director is going for i I have to think that these are intentional because they're they're not at all subtle, but um, you know I, I I've never heard an interview with John Patrick Shanley about this movie. I kind of tried to find one, and I've also tried to find his publicist too. He's he's much older now. This movie is thirty three years old, so uh, he's getting up there in age. I don't know if he does interviews. I'd love to bring him on, but in any case, the movie starts out with the credits and um, the song that's playing is a version of 16 tons, uh, which is great. Um, it's not the classic version. It's a cover by somebody who, you know, kind of modernized it for 1990. And uh, you know, the, the, the song lyrics go um, 16 tons and what do you get another year older and deeper in debt. And then, they talk about selling your soul to the company store. So uh, they show Tom Hanks kind of plotting into this factory um, that, that, that manufactures rectal probes. <laughs> and uh, that's his job. And, uh, of course, everybody is kind of plotting uh, in almost like the walking dead. Like they're, they're not in a hurry to get inside this place. And it's a very dismal looking place 
The parking lot is muddy and full of potholes. The building looks very um, uninviting. And uh, and then you find out that that's, that's what it is. Now, Joe doesn't work like on an assembly line. He, um, he has a job in the advertising library of the, of the rectal probe company, uh, which is called American Panoscope, by the way. Um, and I, I should have said at the beginning of this, they, they kind of framework this story as a fairy tale. So it starts out once upon a time, there was a guy named Joe who had a very lousy job. And then you see this, these people plotting in. And the first bit of symbolism you get is that the, the sidewalk of the company is in the shape of the company logo. And the company lo- logo is a lightning bolt, which I think would have to be referring to Zeus when um, you... Uh, once you you watch the movie and you see how much symbolism there is here from Greek myth, then I assume that that's why the lightning the lightning bolt's a reoccurring theme, and of course the lightning bolt is Zeus's uh, means towards all kinds of things, including um, impregnating uh, Semele with his uh, son Dionysus, the savior god of the Greeks, the wine god and the savior God who rises from the dead. Um, so anyway, we're still in the opening credits and he's plotting in and then they t- they pan away and they show this lightning bolt uh, sidewalk and there's people just shuffling. <laughs> like I can only, like a zombie movie. They're all like zombies and they, they just shuffling into the factory and you get this very depressing feel. Um, at one point, uh, there's a, uh, a flower growing amidst all this dismal muck and depressing scenery. There's this one beautiful flower. And as people are, they they show like the ground level and people's feet going by this and they're all missing the flower and the flower, I think kind of represents some hope. And then a woman's shoe comes down and just crushes it. (laughs) So, you know, we're crushing all hope, like abandon ye all hope or abandon all hope ye who enter right? Like you're walking into hell. Um, and then you see the sign home of the rectal probe. So, uh, there you have it. And, and Joe eventually gets to, he he goes inside the factory. You see a little bit of the inside of the factory and people plotting down staircases through that. It looks very dungeon like very, uh, almost descending into hell as they walk down the stairs. And then he gets to the room that he, uh, works in the advertising department. And of course, as soon as he walks in, it's also very depressing. There's the bad track lighting and, you know, some of the lights are flickering. They don't work. It's very, um, kind of dim, but still not warm, just very depressing lighting. And he, his boss, uh, Mr. Waturi, who is played by Dan Hidea, who's all, he's great in everything, right? Um, he's on the phone with a, this recurring argument that he has with whoever he's talking to, saying, uh, I know he can get the job, but can he do the job? And he keeps saying that over and over. And, of course, you're annoyed listening to it, and, you know, that's intentional. You know, the viewer's annoyed just the way you can imagine Tom Hanks's character has heard this uh, probably every day for 
I can't remember how many years he works there. And so uh, Joe uh, gets over to his desk, and uh, Meg Ryan, who plays three characters in this uh, movie, and that's important. Um, that is a reference, I believe, to the triple goddess uh, theme that runs throughout Greek and other um, uh, Western myth, uh, including the Jesus story. There's three Marys who, who find go to the, the tomb when he rises from the dead. Um, so the first incarnation that Meg Ryan uh, plays is this, this uh, secretary named Dee Dee, who's not very deep, uh, seems nice, kind of uh, not the brightest person in the world, but she comes in to see Joe uh, to tell him that he has to he has to send out some catalogs that uh, he's in charge of sending to potential customers. And uh, Joe is putting this lamp on his desk. Um, that's that kind of if you when he turns on the lamp, it's got kind of these ocean scenes and it and it's uh, almost something a teenager would have in their bedroom that kind of lights up the whole office and makes it very warm and very dreamy and very much like a fairy tale uh, as opposed to this desolate, awful environment that the office is without it. And just as Dee Dee comes in, uh, Joe is looking at his shoe, which has got a hole in it. And we saw this actually when he's walking into the parking lot. I forgot to mention it. Um, but, uh, of course, the sole of his shoe is coming off. And there's there's a very um, unsubtle metaphor there. And he actually says, I'm losing my soul. <laughs> so working in, in the advertising department of the rectal probe company is stealing his soul. And then we have this whole drama which is kind of funny where, um, you know, Joe is supposed to maintain the library, but this Mr. Waturi won't actually let him order more, uh, or mortar, order more materials. So he can't fulfill the order that Didi came in to tell him to fulfill. Cause he says, well, I only have six of them left or whatever it is. And of course this prompts, Mr. Waturi to come in to ball him out. Well, why, why did you let it get so low? And then Joe uh, tells him, well, because, you know, you won't let me order more materials. There's some machine that you have to put the orders into and they go through all this. And, uh, you know, Waturi says, well, why didn't you tell me? And Joe says, well, I told you two weeks ago and I told you again last week. And, uh, and he says, did you tell me this week or something like that? And he's like, no. And then Waturi balls him out for that. And then as he's leaving, Waturi tells him, I want those, those materials ordered. And of course, Hanks replies, well, please order them then because <laughs> he's not allowed to. Of course, this all goes right by Waturi. Um, and, uh, you know, you're kind of just set up that he's in a really, really bad position He's losing his soul symbolically, and he he himself needs to be saved from this. Something has to um, help him escape from this, or he will, you know, sort of be damned. Now, one of the things that comes out with his uh, discussion with Waturi is that he doesn't feel good, and he's got these kind of uh, vague symptoms 
and he's going to go see the doctor. And we learn that, of course, Joe never feels good. He always is going to the doctor. And Waturi seems to have some legitimate grievances with Joe as an employee because um, although the uh, catalog problem is not Joe's fault, uh, he does seem to skip a lot of work and and just generally be a depressed person in the office, as anybody would be working in that office. Uh, so Joe's going to the doctor, and he goes to see Dr. Ellison, played by Robert Stack, who's just really, really good in this. All, all of the uh, supporting cast, is to me, is just phenomenal. Lloyd Bridges kind of steals the first part of the movie. We'll get to that in a minute. Um, but Ellison basically tells Joe that they've done a bunch of tests and they have found something. And um, they say, you know, he, they, he tells him he has a brain cloud and it's, it's some, it, he says he doesn't have cancer, but what he describes the brain cloud as being sounds like cancer. Cause it's like this dark piece of tissue down the middle of his brain that will keep on expanding and eventually he'll die and he's going to die relatively soon in a few months. And, uh, and then, you know, stack tells him Dr. Ellison, but you know, you'll feel fine right up until this happens. And Joe's already saying like, well, I already don't feel good now. And that's when Ellison tells him like, well, yeah, all these symptoms you think you're having there, they have nothing to do with your, uh, with this brain cloud, this, which has no symptoms. Um, the rest of it, he's just a hypochondriac. And, and basically what you get out of it is we learn that Joe used to be a firefighter. Okay. So what most people consider a real hero, um, and that, uh, the, the constant stress and brushes with death that, um, that, uh, were part of that job have made him, uh, like this hypochondriac who always feel like always believes he doesn't feel good, believes he's sick somehow, but he really, there's nothing wrong with him other than this brain cloud. And so he tells, uh, Joe, he's got a few months to live and, and Joe, um, uh, you know, this is kind of an awakening for him and, uh, he, he doesn't have any money and, you know, you spend it all on doctors, he says. So he can't really like travel or do anything. And he asks, you know, Dr. Ellison, what do you think I should do? And uh, Ellison tells him, you have a little bit of life left. Live it well. So this prompts Joe to then um, kind of turn his life around what's left of it. And, of course, he's going to go back into um, the office and... He's going to quit his job. He's going to tell off Waturi in kind of an epic way and um, even roughs Waturi up a little bit. He doesn't hit him or anything, but he grabs him by the lapels and, and pushes him against the wall. And you can kind of see that guy that could have been the firefighter, the dynamic hero, uh, just a little bit of it coming out because up until now, Joe has been the schlep that just shoulders slumped and, you know, he's, he's got a really bad haircut and, and we'll get to that in a minute. So he tells off with Turi, he quits the job. And as he's leaving, of course, um, he's unpacking his desk and he pulls out some important books, 
uh, and he holds them up and, and tells Waturi, this is the books that I'm that I've uh, had my desk. Robinson Crusoe, he says, Romeo and Juliet, The Odyssey. So of course, these are all stories that are kind of based on the same thing, the hero's journey. Romeo and Juliet is is a little bit of an outlier and, and it is based on ancient myths because that was, you know, Shakespeare's uh, sources uh, were especially Plutarch, but but others. Um, but of course, the last one is the Odyssey. And in the movie, Joe is going to have his own Odyssey. We're going to find out. And uh, so he packs up his stuff. He, he, he tells off Waturi and then um, he leaves and then he, he sticks his head back in and he uh, he asks Didi to dinner. He says, Didi, uh, how about dinner tonight? And she says, okay. And of course, this is like, you know, he's been kind of fond of Didi the whole time he's worked there. I can't remember how many years he said he had worked there. It might have been six. And he made a big deal that he had sold his soul, so to speak, for $300 a week. Um, and he had never, you know, uh, asked out Didi because he was too afraid. And his fear of of taking any chances, fear in general, is a big theme in this movie. Um, so he asks out Didi. And the next scene we see is they're at dinner at a restaurant. And the first thing he says is, who am I? Who are you? Um, and he's 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 very amped up and uh, he, he keeps talking on this theme about knowing yourself. And of course, this is a, a direct reference to the ancient mysteries and um, the goal of which was for a person to know himself or herself in order to connect to the divine spark that's supposedly inside every person and uh, that this would go for the people who practice the ancient mysteries uh, at Eleusis or it would also go for the Gnostic Christians it would go for the people who followed uh, the Persian Mithras cult all of the ancient mysteries had this this um, goal for the 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 person who was initiated into the mysteries to know himself. In fact, um, over the door of the entrance to the um, temple where the Oracle of Delphi was in ancient Greece, that's what was written up there, know yourself. And I believe in the Matrix movies, they copped this, and the Oracle character in the Ma- Matrix movies has the same thing written over her door. If I'm remembering right, they have it in Latin, but it I, I could be wrong, but that was written over the Oracle at Delphi's uh, door. So this is like a very unsubtle signal to the, the viewer. We're in ancient myth territory, and Joe's um, mission in, in this movie is going to be to answer that question, who am I? And that will be the key to him escaping this misery, um, this soulless life, or, or losing his soul anyway, um, for him to find out to know himself. Um, so, uh, of course, Didi is overcome by the change in him. 
And, um, you know, this leads to, you know, her being kind of lit up by Joe and Joe gets, uh, you know, the minstrels to come over and sing a song to them that will make their hearts swell and burst or something like that. So Joe is clicking with Dee Dee. He's got her eating out of the palm of his hand. They go back to his place and it's looking like um, they're going to spend the night together. And then Joe tells her, you know, what, what the big change is all about. She just keeps asking him, what happened to you? You were such a lump, she said, and now you're so alive. And he tells her he's going he's gonna to die in a few months. And immediately her body language from like, you know, basically mauling the poor kid uh, changes to like she's very, you know, she just almost crumples up in a standing fetal position. Um, and, and this look comes over her face of kind of blind terror. You're going to die. Oh my God. And, um, so Dee Dee can't, can't handle it. It's too much for her and he wants her to stay the night, but she doesn't, she can't do it. And, and that Dee Dee character bows out of the movie. And of course, there's a lot of ways you could interpret. It's obviously not a, an accident that, um, that Meg Ryan plays these three different, very different characters and that they're, they're supposed to represent something. Now, some interpretations of the triple goddess from ancient Greece would be that they, they represent the three stages of the life of the soul that, that there's the maiden, the uh, mother and the crone, um, uh, the old woman, um, but I think she definitely represents three stages of maturity in this movie because, of course, Dee Dee is very girlish and very immature and not very deep and not very not very much wisdom. And the next character that she's going to play in this movie as Joe proceeds on his journey is somebody who's more of a lost soul. And we'll talk more about that when we get there. And, of course, the last character is the heroine the one that joe is really there to both rescue and to rescue him um and she is you know a full fully developed and uh woman so there's no there's no real old woman in this um but but these three characters definitely represent three different stages so to speak of uh, this goddess character or this um, damsel character. So Dee Dee is now gone. She's left Joe's apartment. And the next thing we see is it's the next morning and he's playing his ukulele, looking out the window in his bathrobe, um, you know, kind of uh, not doing much. And he gets a knock on the door. And really one of my favorite scenes is the scene with Lloyd Bridges. He's just over the top in this scene. It's very big acting by him and very appropriately big acting. And he plays this very rich guy um, and, um, you know, business owner um, that owns this big company that makes um, superconductors. And he comes in and... Basically, he knows everything about Joe's situation, and uh, there's there's all kinds of great like, like comic uh, 
stuff in this scene. I guess maybe I don't have to spoil it all. Just just to say that um, that Lloyd Bridges is awesome in this, and I think he's this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and maybe the best performance in the movie by any of the actors, including Hanks and and um, Meg Ryan. Although she she deserves a lot a lot of credit for the three different characters she does. But he he basically says, look, I know you're dying and I know you don't have any money. And um, look, you could you could waste out these months in this dismal apartment. And he's he he actually walks in. He's got a cane and he hits the wall of Joe's apartment. It just just puts a big hole in the plaster or drywall, whatever it is. Looks more like plaster. He's like, boy, this place isn't very nice. (laughs) And at one point, uh, I think my favorite line in this whole uh, thing is where uh, Lloyd Bridges um, he says I, I I'm paraphrasing but it's like I consider it a a sign of great sophistication that you have not asked me what my name is or what I'm doing here but basically he sets up the plot for the rest of the movie and the reason for the title of the movie by saying look there's this island um that is inhabited by these people called the Waponi Wu. And um, it's named after this, the Wu part of it is a big volcano on the island that erupts every hundred years unless somebody is sacrificed. They have to sacrifice somebody to the big Wu, and then that'll keep the um, volcano from erupting and destroying the island and all the people on it. Now, Bridge's interest in this is that the... The island has some material that's that's um, essential to creating superconductors. Now, remember, this is 1990, all right? So we're early on in the um, the computer age. So I can't remember what the name of the uh, material is, but there's a, an abundance of it on the island, and you can't find it almost anywhere else. And so... Um, so he, he he wants to get this material from the island, but the islanders won't give him the rights. Uh, but he comes up with the idea, well, what if I come up with somebody to jump into the volcano? Because the Wu uh, in 1990 now, nobody wants to do this. I guess in, in centuries past, there was always some brave guy that would go jump in the volcano and save the people. But now there's nobody to save the people, to die for the people. So... Don't let that get lost on you. And uh, Bridges thinks he's found his man. He says, look, here's what, here's the deal. You're going out anyway. You know that. So why not go out with a bang instead of a whimper? Uh, I am going to give you these credit cards. If you take the job, you go buy anything you want, buy all the clothes you want, get ready for a trip. We're going to fly you first class to L.A., from there, you're getting on my yacht, and you're going to sail to this to this uh, tropical island in the South Pacific, uh, and he, which he calls the sweetest little paradise you ever saw, you know. And and uh, he's going to take this great ocean voyage, uh, personal chef, the whole thing. He's first class all the way. He goes. Then you're going to get there, and they're going to have this big feast for you, and then you jump in the volcano. And of course, since you're going to die anyway, this is the way to go out rather than just sit around the apartment playing your ukulele. And uh, it seems like a good deal to Joe, so he takes the deal. And of course, this is all very suspicious, but 
Joe doesn't ask any questions. And uh, so the next day, um, I'm sorry, I think it's the same day uh, because this is morning when this all occurs. And, um, you know, Joe's still in his pajamas. So then after they cut from him accepting the deal with Lloyd Bridges, the next thing you see is this limo driving and um, uh, you hear Joe calling to, to order the limo. Does it come with a driver? Blah, blah, blah. He gets a limo and he's going to go shopping in his limo with these credit cards that Lloyd Bridges' character gave him. So they show him in the limo and then they've got uh, Ossie Davis. The actor is the limo driver, uh, African-American. And um, I, I have to do an aside here because it it's really funny. I had never heard of this this kind of complaint. Um, I think it was Spike Lee who actually coined the term, but he talked about what he called the magical Negro, which is this character that's kind of kind of recurring in Hollywood films where a a black character will um, pass on some vague wisdom to uh, the white main character. And I think he mentioned the, the legend of Bagger Vance, which I never saw. And then I know that in the interview, he said, um, think of every character Morgan Freeman's ever played, you know, and, and not everyone. But um, and I, I kind of, you know, as much as a lot of this racial stuff is, is baloney in 2023, it wasn't baloney in 1955, but it is now. I think that's a pretty legitimate grievance. Like there is this, <laughs> this character and, and you watch these movies. And of course, you know, a lot of Hollywood script writers aren't very deep and, uh, and this wisdom that's passed on, you're kind of like, well, what, what exactly was this great? Because you've always got some great actor doing it. And with, with, you know, this powerful delivery of this, again, this, this vague wisdom he's passing on. And a lot of times there's not much to it. Um, I don't think that that's the case here though, with Ossie Davis in Joe versus the volcano, because uh, Joe gets in the car. And again, you know, Joe is a lost soul, right? So um, Ossie Davis is basically saying, okay, where do you want to go? Well, I want to go shopping. Okay. What do you want to shop for? I want to shop for some clothes. What kind of clothes? He's like, I don't know. He goes, well, what's your style? What's your taste? You know, what what are you looking for? And he says, I don't know. And at that point, um, Marshall, Ossie Davis's character, pulls the limo over. And he says, um, look, they just hired me to drive the car, sir. I'm not here to tell you who you are. So there it is again. Uh, Joe's mission in this movie is to know himself to find out who he is uh so that you know he will not lose his soul and um they hit you over the head with it again and joe's like what are you talking about and and marshall basically says look i believe clothes make the man and you know this is a very personal thing and if you're asking me to tell you what kind of clothes to buy that's like asking me to tell you who you are and he and then he says, it's taken me uh, my whole life to find out who I am and I'm tired. Right. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we they're reinforcing this idea. Know yourself. 
Um, and, and what Marshall is going to help Joe do not, not to find, not to know himself, but at least to get himself going on the journey. So, um, Marshall, you know, has some connections in the city. He knows a, uh, a hairstylist. Now Joe has got like just the worst hair you've ever seen. It's long, but it has no shape. It's not even, it's not a mullet. I mean, it could be one, but the, like the sides aren't cut short to make it into a mullet. It's not even a mullet. That's how bad it is. And uh, so we're going to get a haircut for Joe. And uh, the hairstylist, by the way, is Carol Kane. She's in the movie for like a minute and a half tops. And she's awesome. She's great and everything. I, I like her anyway. Um, but uh, they get Joe a decent haircut. Now he looks better. He, he buys a whole bunch of clothes and they go to a bunch of stores and he buys all kinds of things that are going to come in handy on this journey, including like <laughs> he gets like a, a putting little portable putting green. You could just roll out on your carpet, but he gets a portable bar. That's going to be important. Um, and then there's this whole scene where he buys his luggage and uh, the guy who plays the luggage salesman is another like high point comic acting his name is barry mcgovern and you're just gonna have to experience that um i mean the one line that's just sticks with me forever is you know joe tells him what what i'm gonna do i'm gonna get a plane i'm gonna go on a boat i'm gonna sail to the south seas uh i'm going to this island where that no one's ever heard of and uh barry mcgovern's like very interesting as a luggage problem. You know, this guy is totally into luggage, right? And then, uh, and then he shows Joe this, the, the ultimate packing case, right? It's, it's got all these buzzers and bells. It's, um, you know, the most expensive one. And Joe buys like four of them. And he goes, he goes, I'll take four. And Barry McGovern's like, may you live for a thousand years, sir. <laughs> you know, so very good scene, very good comedy going there. You know, it's funny because in this movie, um, Tom Hanks doesn't have a lot of, you know, belly laugh kind of comic lines. It's all the supporting people because because Tom Hanks's character is always kind of lost. So he's never in command enough to deliver the great comic comic line, but there's plenty of laughs in the movie. I haven't really pointed out a lot of them. Barry McGovern is definitely a high point. Um, there's some great scenes. Lloyd Bridges is just over the top, funny and awesome. And, um, you know, uh, and, and it doesn't stop there. And during this shopping spree with Marshall, um, of course, at one point they buy tuxedos. And, um, you know, uh, Hank's Joe's care, uh, Hank's character, Joe offers to buy one for Marshall and Marshall's like, I, I can't buy a Armani tux. And Hank's basically says, look, you're giving me all this advice. They're only paying you to drive the car. I'll buy it for you. So they both get these Armani tuxes and, uh, Hank's makes the comment. I feel like I'm getting married. And uh, Marshall says, I feel like I'm giving you away. Of course, that's very important because marriage in, in the myth cycle is um, is the happy ending. It's the it's the culmination. And so um, they're signaling to you. This is the beginning 
of something that's going to end in a marriage if it ends well. Uh, so that's that's kind of an important little little thing there. And I should I should say that um, when Joe gets his hair cut, by the way, uh, with Carol Kane, she's got this French name, and and the first line she speaks, she's got this kind of affected accent, but that's that goes away, and I'm I'm not sure if this is on I think it is on purpose, but she cuts his hair and she kind of spins him around to look in the mirror, and Marshall says the words "You're coming into focus, kid," and then Cassie says "Shazam." Uh, which is a reference to Captain Marvel, which is a reference, of course, to the ancient Egyptian gods that that whole comic series was based on. So you've got that in there. And if if you didn't already know this, I used to watch Captain Marvel when I was a kid. Um, the Shazam word that's supposed to be magic that changes him from, you know, the Clark Kentish kind of character that he is into Captain Marvel, that's actually an acronym, and it's it stands for Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. That's where Shazam comes from. So again, no accident that she says that word. Um, they they're constantly reminding you that we are on the hero's journey as it was told in Greek myth over and over and over again. Um, so the shopping, uh, and hair styling, um, part, uh, excursion is over and then it's time for Joe to go to a hotel to spend the night. He invites Marshall. Marshall says, look, I can't come with you. I've got the, the wife and kids at the end of the day. And, uh, Joe makes the comment, well, that's okay. I guess there's some doors you have to go through alone. And then we get this kind of montage of Joe going to um, they, by the way, he asked Marshall, what hotel should he stay at? And um, they don't go to the Waldorf. I can't remember the one that Joe says, Marshall's like, well, where would you stay if you wanted to? And he mentions one. I think he says it's the, um, uh, the one they made the Neil sign movie about. And I can't, it's, it's escaping me. Uh, the Plaza, Plaza Suite, it might be, I can't remember. And then Marshall says, well, I'd go to the Pierre. And then Hank says, well, I'm going to go to the Pierre. So he goes to the hotel Marshall suggests. And again, Marshall's important here because he's pointing Joe in the right direction at every step of the way to begin his journey. And, uh, you know, I know that that magical Negro uh, obviously was a, pejorative that Spike Lee was, you know, unhappy with this, uh, this kind of uh, patronizing role that black uh, characters, black actors were forced to play in a lot of movies. I think in this case, though, it is, it, it, it is important. Marshall's a very important character. He's in, important because without him, Joe would never find his way, he would never equip himself to um, start his journey. <clears throat> so it is magical. And one of the um, elements of the hero's journey with Joseph Campbell is divine help. That at some point, the character gets something, uh, some some help from the gods to uh, be able to complete the journey. I think with Theseus, it's remember, it's the shield and the sword 
The shield is the one that's real shiny, so you can use it as a mirror to see Medusa's head. And, um, you know, in, in every one of those myths, there's something. Somehow or other, the gods intervene to give um, the hero what he needs to be able to complete his journey. Uh, I mean, Jack and the beanstalk. Jack gets the magic beans that grow the beanstalk for him to go up there to be able to... Um, kill the giant and bring back the golden goose. So um, this is divine help. Marshall, the character, is divine help, I think, or or in that uh, vein to help Joe on his journey. So um, the next thing, we see a little montage of Joe eating dinner alone. He's at the bar. looks like he's having a martini. Uh, there's a woman next to him that seems attractive and uh, somebody that, you know, if you're a single guy like uh, Tom Hanks out on the town having martinis, you might strike up a conversation with, but he doesn't. And I can't think of why they put her there other than to just show that he doesn't, you know, show any interest in her. Um, so... Uh, as he said to Marshall before Marshall leaves the picture, you know, he's walking through this door at the Pierre alone. And then the end of that night that he spends at the Pierre, um, he's obviously been out for a walk or I, I don't know if the, maybe the bar where he drank the martini was not in the hotel, but he's coming back to the hotel and he sees several old elderly couples going in. And uh, he just kind of observes them. And the only thing I can think of uh, for the reason to have those people in there and have and make a point of him seeing them and watching them is that uh, this is a goal for him that, you know, that he might be at some point in his life, an old person who's been married to the right woman for, you know, many, many years or decades so that's the last scene we see at the Pierre. And then the next scene that we get is at uh, LAX. So I assume it's LAX. He flies to LA and he gets off the plane and we see Meg Ryan in her second uh, character. She's no longer Dee Dee. And now she is um, Angelica, who looks completely different. Looks like somebody you might expect to see in L.A. in 1990. And she's got a sign up with his name on it. So she's there to greet him. And we find out, of course, that she's Lloyd Bridges character's daughter, you know, which is important uh, that um, both she and the third character Meg Ryan plays are daughters of... Uh, Lloyd Bridges, who's, I guess I should uh, say his name in the uh, picture, in the movie. His name is Samuel Harvey Grainamore. And um, Meg Ryan is Angelica Grainamore, one of his two daughters. And she's there to pick him up at the airport. And she tells him, she's got this great, um, I don't know if you'd call it an accent. Um, it's kind of an affectation, a way of talking <laughs> that seems very much like somebody who's kind of, you know, a pretentious Los Angeles person. Um, it's not really a Valley girl kind of thing. It's more, um, yeah, you'll just have to watch it and decide what it is. Very different from Dee Dee who sound like, you know, she was 
she could be a, a you know a secretary from Jersey. And then you know she tries to inquire as to what Joe's you know doing for her father. Then right away she says, "Oh, I, I don't want to know. You know, I'm you know I'm a flibbertigibbet. That's what she says. You know, basically I'm not trustworthy." Um. So she picks up Joe. And uh, she takes him to lunch. And they're kind of small talking. And she asks him what um, he does. And she, th- This character also, Meg Ryan, probably her best comedy in this movie is as Angelica. It's really, I guess, Dee Dee was supposed to be funny. Um, Angelica, to me, was more funny. <laughs> and um, she uh, asks him what he does. And he says, I'm an advertising librarian. And she says... I have no response to that. Um, and you have to see the way she delivers that line, uh, which is a recurring line for her. Um, very funny. And then we learn more about Angelica and her sister, a little bit about her sister. And um, she tells him that, uh, well, at the restaurant, she points out that they have, she's a painter and a poet, she says. And she points out they have one of um, my paintings on the wall and they show the painting and it's kind of this, uh, I don't know if it's Andy Warhol, but it's, it's a very pop culture kind of painting that shows a red sports car on that cliff you've seen in 20 million Hollywood movies where you're kind of looking down on, on Los Angeles and, you know, there's just a million lights, but you're up in, you know, up in the hills. Um, and they're there on that same ledge that I think I've seen in, again, you know, a hundred movies. Um, and so they cut right to that scene that looks just like the painting on the wall in the, in the restaurant. And now it's nighttime and they're there. And Angelica has taken him to this place and she recites one of her poems and then she kind of breaks down emotionally and and then she spills the beans that um you know she's obviously another lost soul and she's a lost soul because she still um is living like kind of on her her father's money Lloyd Bridges and she says well that restaurant that had my painting up that's his restaurant which is you know why they have the painting up and um she basically says that she feels, you know, that she can't really move forward in her life and, and find out who she is. She doesn't say those words, but I think that's definitely um, intended in the scene uh, and because she's kind of uh, still living off her dad. She's still like, you know, the old living in my parents' basement kind of uh, kind of feeling. And then Joe has all this clarity about what she needs to do, which is, well, why don't you leave L.A. and go out on your own, you know? And she doesn't receive that advice very well. And, um, you know, she says, oh, yeah, it's easy for you to say because it doesn't cost you anything, right? And which is, you know, actually true, right? Joe, now Joe has has his own problems, and uh, you'll have to watch that scene. There's they, there's there's a lot of stuff that's really well done there that where Joe is kind of feeling like, you know, um, who am I to tell this woman what to do when I'm, you know, 
10 times worse than her as far as being lost. But part of that whole exchange is uh, um, Angelica asking Joe, did you ever think about killing yourself? And then Joe reacts very negatively to that. And one of the things he says is, uh, she says, well, why not? And he says, well, because some things take care of themselves, which obviously in his case, uh, that's the, that's true. But of course, you know, the irony here is that Joe is on a journey to kill himself. So his, uh, his um, kind of negative reaction and scolding of Angelica is very hypocritical on his part. Although, you know, in Joe's situation, it really doesn't matter if he kills himself or he's going to die very soon after anyway. So they have a little bit of an angry exchange, and then Joe makes another appeal to try to help her as best he can. She gives him the no response to that line again, this time in a more bitter way than than the original way she said it. And so he says, well, you better take me back to the hotel. And she drives him um, back, and um, as they pull up to the curb, she offers to come in. And um, on the on her license plate, by the way, when she pulls up, you see that her license plate says "Good Girl," and uh, um, but then she, you know, uh, offers to come up with him to his room, and you're not really sure. I mean, it seems like she's offering to sleep with him, but it's not all that clear. But he turns her down, um, and you get the feeling that like. Joe has decided this is not a person that's going to help me on my journey. Um, and uh, he's just not interested in her, even though I, I think, you know, she's Meg Ryan. She's, she's attractive. Of course they have her made up in, in kind of a, uh, I guess what you'd call like, again, 1990s LA way. Um, but uh, so this is the second time that he's probably had an opportunity to just kind of have a one night stand with somebody and he's decided not to do it. So I think that's important in the story. And I guess you could say that, um, well, he didn't decide not to do it with Dee Dee. And then he had that woman in the bar. And again, that's not real explicit, but it, it seems like she's there for a reason and he, he doesn't make a pass at her or, or, or take any interest in her. So this is at least the second time and maybe the third time he's he's not going to have a one night stand. And I think this is more in line with the romantic comedy than the myth, although the myth um, part of it, it is important because he's looking for the true person, you know, which is going to be Meg Ryan's um, final third character. And of course, that's the person he's supposed to be with. Um, and um this is also kind of something that does run through the myths. The savior God in the myth, his his mission on earth is to save the goddess, right? So in every one of these, Theseus goes to save the goddess from the goddess figure from the labyrinth, even though she's immortal, she's representing the goddess. And of course, you know, if you're willing to go out and uh, interpret the gospel stories in this way. This is Jesus's uh, mission on earth to save Mary Magdalene, Jesus being the universal spirit and Mary Magdalene being the lost soul. 
Um, I think um, whether you want to go there or not, which I know is controversial, at least in these United States, um, you should read uh, the Gnostic Christian ch- uh, text, Exegesis of the Soul. And I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I think the Meg, the Angelica character very much represents um, the the lost soul of exegesis of the soul, which the soul is always characterized in ancient myths as female. And in, in the ancient myths, spirit and soul are two different things. The spirit, pneuma in Greek, the breath, um, that is something different than the psyche, which is the soul. And in many of the myths, um, this pneuma spirit is there to save the psyche soul from uh, whatever it's being lost. The basic idea is that the soul gets lost in kind of the carnal uh, aspect of its existence. Um, I'm lost in the body and I've, I've been disconnected from the spirit. Um, so I think this Angelica character very much represents that lost soul and in exegesis of the soul um the the female goddess soul character um is with a lot of different men she's kind of passed from man to man and and used and abused by these these male characters and that's that symbolizes her being lost the soul being lost and uh the spirit comes to save her from all that and again i i mean I interpret the gospel stories to be Jesus comes to save Mary Magdalene, the prostitute from, um, from this life of being lost, uh, in, in carnal and, um, earthly, uh, sinfulness. Now, the other thing that we get out of Angelica, and this also speaks to the exegesis of the soul. So this is, I think that this has got to be a source for this movie, um, is that she keeps saying that, you know, her and her sister later will keep saying that their father is never around. They're always looking for their father. Um, and so both of these two female characters, to an extent, represent the psyche and uh, that daddy loves secrets, she says. So in other words, there's this unknowable thing about the father, right? Uh, and he's never around and we're always looking for him. That's That comes out with Angelica. It comes out with um, Meg Ryan's final character in the movie, uh, which is Patricia. But we're still, we're still with Angelica. They have breakfast the night after she drops him off at the hotel. And she apologizes for being so grotesque last night. Or something to that effect. So she's this this part. I, this is probably her best bit in the movie, comically, is is as Angelica. And then she tells him that she's actually supposed to take him to the dock to get on the yacht to go on the voyage to uh, Wapani, the Woo, the big Woo, whatever the island, uh, and that her half sister Patricia is going to be the. Uh, master of that boat. So as they're having breakfast, uh, all of a sudden Angelica realizes they're late. Oh my God, we got to go. 
And so she uh, takes Joe down to the dock where uh, Graynamore, Lloyd Bridges' yacht, is uh, is docked. And they've got some shipmates uh, loading up the boat, getting it ready. Uh, Joe's four <laughs> uh, suitcases or, or packing crates, whatever you want to call them, uh, are are being loaded on. And we meet... Uh, Meg Ryan's final character here, Patricia, who is not very nice to Joe when she first meets him, and she keeps calling him Felix. And the first thing she asks is, "What's with the trunks, Felix?" Um, and uh, you know, he says, "Oh no, my name is Joe." And uh, then she looks at he had he had dressed himself up with this this ridiculous getup that looks like something out of like a Tarzan movie that takes place in 1910 with that, that hat all the British explorers would be wearing it, you know, in, in Africa back then. And, and, um, jungle Jim, I think somebody makes a, a reference to that. And, um, she says that suits wearing you, Felix, that's Meg Ryan, Patricia. Um, she uh she says that and and I think this is important because after she calls him Felix a couple times he says why are you calling me Felix my name's Joe this is important because Joe is asserting I at least know that much about who I am I, I at least can I at least know my name and um you know Joe the character has been a pushover for most of the movie but you can see that there's a hero inside of him. There's a strong person inside of him. And uh, when she calls him um, Felix for the last time, get ready to heave, Felix, uh, all of a sudden this bigger voice comes out of Tom Hanks and he says, my name is Joseph or Joe. And it's like, I'm not taking the shit anymore from you, okay? Um, And uh, again, I think that's an important thing. And she's like, okay, Joe, we're leaving, all right? So she begrudgingly calls him by his proper name. And, um, I mean, this is a step that Joe has taken now, right, in the, in the story. Another thing that happens during uh, this exchange while they're at the dock and Angelica is still there is that they both say hello to each other kind of in unison. Hello, Angelica. Hello, Patricia. And uh, or I'm sorry, they both greet each other and then they both say in unison about where's daddy or where's our father. And then um, Patricia says that we never know where our father is. Um, so this is another kind of hit you over. The, if, if you're familiar with the whole idea of the lost goddess um, being the, the lost soul, then this kind of hits you over the head pretty hard it's not subtle um and they they keep reminding you that this idea that they're separated from their father that is the soul lost in the um you know the affairs of the body and the and the physical world rather than the spirit so joe gets on the boat and um we there's a scene where uh, he and patricia meg ryan are having dinner and of course, um, you know, she eventually stops being so rude to him. 
Um, he asked her why she was, and she says that she's mad at her father. Um, and again, repeats that because we never know where he is. He's never around. Um, and then, uh, they talk a little bit, bit about the voyage and all she knows is she's going to this island. And then there's some comic stuff about what, who's on the island. The, um, they, she gives the history of how the, the Waponi people came about, which they're, um, it was like a Roman galley with Jews and Druids were sailing in the South Seas. And so these people are a mixture of Polynesian, Hebrew, Celtic, and Latin cultures. And, of course, just for comic relief, they, they have this craving for orange soda. So, you know, you get these people dressed in very primitive native garb, and then they're all drinking orange soda <laughs> out of a can, uh, which or how they get that is, you know, anybody's guess um and so uh she's trying to find out of course what's you know i don't where are you going why are you going there and i don't know anything other than i'm supposed to take you there and joe of course is keeping everything close to the vest and uh that night he's in bed and patricia becomes you know a much more um accommodating as a host and apologizes for being uh, rude and then he she asks did you sleep with my sister and this is important too um obviously you know everything they put into the movie they put in for a reason and he says no and she then kind of comes clean that like her sister well she doesn't say like her sister but that she's a lost soul that um she's ashamed because um she always had been out on her own. She said she would never work for her father, but that he kind of got her to work for him because he promised that if she did this job, which was take Joe to the island, that uh, she could keep the yacht. And you find out that the yacht's called the Tweedledee and that there's also another yacht called the Tweedledum, which is like the same yacht. So there's two of them. Um, and we never get to see the Tweedledum, but. Uh, in any case, um, but we get the, the, the main theme of the movie from Patricia again. She says, you know, the reason she was rude to him and the reason she's upset was she's ashamed because she goes, I know I had a price and now I know that about myself. So this idea of self-knowledge comes up again. And she says, if you had slept with my sister, I would know that about you. Um, but she doesn't know anything about Joe. And of course, Joe doesn't know much about Joe. He's starting to learn more about himself. But um, because he didn't sleep with her sister. Now, a couple of things come out of this. Number one, I don't know that about you, she says. And it also reinforces this idea, again, in Exegesis of the Soul, that um, the goddess kind of sleeps around. That's when she's lost. She allows herself to be used by other men. And, and while we don't see that happening to Angelica, her doing that, um, we get the impression that it's, you know, the first thing out of Patricia's mouth is, did you sleep with her? Well, she probably she kind of expected that he might have. So obviously Angelica sleeps around or is easy to for for men to take advantage of. And he didn't do that. So that's important. 
and uh, Patricia also says that she's soul sick and that they're going to be on this long voyage and you're going to see that. So I just wanted to tell you, she lays her cards on the table. So that's an important scene. And, um, you know, he goes to bed. She's very accommodating and obviously like kind of extending an olive branch to him, not being romantic in any way, but just saying, look, I'm, you know, I'm here to be a good host for you and uh, sorry about being rude before. And now you know why I was rude. So the next day they've got um, a scene where they're fishing. It's mainly comic relief. Um, They're doing, you know, ocean fishing off, off the boat. And at one point uh, Hank's hooks like a hammerhead shark and he reels it in. It's like the most fake looking rubber, hammerhead that you've ever seen like it's got cartoonish like eyes and you know it's obviously not to be taken seriously um and hanks does the whole oh my god you know and they all run away and there's basically nothing to that but maybe because we've had so much heavy stuff already like let's let's give it a little levity here let's just uh like you know break up the mood a little so um so after that you know we can get into another scene that's a little bit heavier. So that night, Joe gives her a little bit more. I mean, he opens up a little bit more. He still doesn't tell her the reason he's going to the island. Um, and then they, you know, kind of exchange their their own ideas. And this idea comes out that, um, you know, if you could go anywhere that you wanted to go, where would you go? And away from the things of man is uh, I can't remember who says it in this scene. Is it, is it her or him? I want to say it's her. I would sail away, away from the things of man, because I know at the end of the movie, uh, Hanks is going to repeat that line. But one of the uh, very uh, revealing lines that um, Patricia says to him is they're, they're talking and and Joe uh, says the words, I have no interest in myself, which shows that he still doesn't kind of quite get what his mission is, which is to take a very deep interest in himself, to know himself. That is the goal. That, that is his mission. It's the mission of all the heroes in all the myths eventually, because to know yourself would be to know God and the universe, according to you know, the ancient mysteries. Um, but uh, he says, I have no interest in myself. And Patricia then says, my father says almost the whole world is asleep. Everybody you know, everybody you talk to, he says only a few people are awake and they live in a state of constant total amazement. So this is very important because again, this is the end goal for Joe is to get to that point to um, achieve what, you know, the uh, Buddhists would call Nirvana, what the Gnostics would call Gnosis, what the, um, you know, Greeks would call uh, uh, salvation. So um, the Lloyd Bridges character is obviously this God figure, uh, even though, you know, He's very funny and, you know, he's not always held in a positive light. Hey, the, the Greek gods were not always held in a positive light. They were 
depicted as capricious, but they, they didn't know everything. And of course, you know, Lloyd Bridges, you find out more and more through this movie. He is Zeus. He is the being that knows everything. So, um, this is again, another reference uh, to the ancient mysteries. And it's at this point that Joe finally comes clean and tells Patricia the truth, why he's going to the Island, uh, that he's dying. And she at first reacts like Didi. And she even says the same thing. Like Didi in the, the scene way back near the beginning of the movie, when he says, um, you know, that he's got this brain cloud or whatever, uh, you know, she asks, is it catching? And he says, oh, no, of course not. And and Patricia here says the same thing as Didi. So you're thinking like, oh, is she no more mature or whatever as Didi? But um, he says no, and, and she quickly kind of can get past it. And of course, there is no leaving the boat, so there's no choice to just walk out of the apartment like Didi did. But you also get don't get the impression that she would anyway. Um, so, um, so she says good night, and uh, that's the culmination of that scene that she finds out, you know, everything about Joe's uh, journey. So that's going to do it for uh, part one of my uh, analysis of Joe versus the volcano. Um, I don't think anyone who's ever probably seen this movie, you know, uh, just kind of watching it for entertainment would probably suspect that we need two parts for this. But I took eight pages of notes and we're through about five of them. And then, of course, the next scene after uh, the one we just went through uh, is the storm scene. And it kind of is the, the the middle of the movie, even though in minutes, I think it's a little past the middle. It's um, really the central event of the movie. There's a storm at sea. And we'll cover what happens in that and then Joe's uh, eventual uh, journey to the island and how the movie ends. So join me in episode five for uh, the thrilling conclusion of Joe versus the volcano. And of course, thank you, everybody, for listening. I'm not in love. Don't tell me it's so I'm not in love